At the youthful age of 16, Marco Polo embarked on a journey across the Asian continent with a father and uncle whom he had just met. Their first major stop was the legendary city of Acre, a land which had been inhabited continuously for the past 5,000 years. The earth that the city lies upon had already witnessed the rise and fall of the Assyrians, the Phoenicians, and Alexander the Great. At the moment of the Polo's arrival, it was governed by the Egyptian Macedonian Ptolemaic dynasty. The Romans were followed by the Crusaders, who in turn gave way to the Ottoman Turks. Its walls held against Napoleon Bonaparte, but had fallen to Richard the Lionheart. One travel site describes the UNESCO World Heritage Site as a paradise of history and culture, keeping its patrons engaged and awestruck at every step of the journey. Yet Marco Polo's journey from Venice to the heart of Kublai Khan's Chinese Empire was so colossal that the historical city of Acre pales in comparison to the sights, sounds, and experiences that young Marco partook in. But before he could experience them, he had to get there. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the intertwined legacies of Venetian explorer Marco Polo and the Chinese emperor Kublai Khan. Episode number two, nice to meet you. Want to walk to China? Acre was the staging ground for their journey to the Orient. Marco's relatives had surely intentionally overstated their importance within the Christian world to the great Khan. After all, they had confidently suggested that they could secure Kublai's demands from the leader of Christianity. The Polo's singular connection to the Pope happened to be residing in Acre at the moment. In what had to have felt as though it were divine intervention, that man, Theobaldo Viscontante, was soon chosen as the next pontiff of the Catholic Church. His elevation to the papal see remains the longest within church history, having gone through an exhausting three-year-long election cycle. Its conclusion was reportedly a surprise to Theobaldo, as he was smack dab in the middle of the Ninth Crusade. Taking the easier-to-pronounce name of Gregory X, he embraced his role within the story relayed to him by Niccolo Polo. But unwilling to part with the 100 requested priests, the pontiff instead wrote a personal letter to Kublai and sent to the Khan two priests, as well as the consecrated oil that had been requested. The Christian Bible has quite a bit to say about fear. Take, for instance, Isaiah 41, which reads, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Fear in small doses releases adrenaline, propelling us into action a rush of which makes our vision better, improves our breathing, and blocks pain. 
There are even some medical studies which support the idea that our bodies respond to brief spurts of adrenaline by supercharging the number of antioxidants circulating in our systems, which can actually reverse the effects of aging. This is a significantly cheaper way of achieving eternal youth than the process that tech billionaire Brian Johnson is using. Johnson uses a process that impressively involves a 16 to 18 hour fasting period each day, as well as creepily injecting his young son's blood into his body. He claims that the work he is doing has reduced his biological age from 45 to 31. Considering that it costs Johnson $2 million a year, I will have to rely on fear to keep myself eternally young. But these natural age-reversing effects only happen when the adrenaline boost is short and sporadic. Living your entire life in fear overwhelms our internal system, resulting in trauma. Constant ongoing exposure to fear can result in blurred vision, blackouts, numbness, exhaustion, and a lack of ambition. The two men of the cloth sent by the pontiff, friars by trade, would have wrapped the righteous hand of God around them. Yet the journey that they found themselves proved to be far too terrifying for them to complete. After bearing witness to a Muslim raiding party, the two men abandoned their God-given mission, leaving the polos on their own, who then took their sweet time returning to the Khan traveling first through eastern Turkey to Armenia, then to Iraq and through Iran, before reaching the Strait of Hormuz. Marco took extensive notes on the journey, but there is no sign that he intended to write a book about his travels. There's also no evidence that he was any good at taking notes regularly including within his story secondhand conjecture, which has led some scholars to doubt the entirety of his incredible journey. Take, for instance, this passage, where Marco clearly describes a dragon to his reader. The Venetian writes that, Traveling ten days in a westerly direction, you reach the province of Corazon, which is also the name of the chief city. Here are seen huge serpents, ten paces in length, about thirty feet, and ten spans, about eight feet girth of the body. At the forepart near the head they have two short legs, having three claws like those of a tiger, with eyes larger than a four-plenty loaf and very glaring. The jaws are wide enough to swallow a man, the teeth are large and sharp, and their whole appearance is so formidable that neither man nor any kind of animal can approach them without terror. Others are met with of a smaller size, being eight, six, or five paces long, and the following method is used for taking them. In the daytime, by reason of great heat, they lurk in caverns. From whence at night they issue to seek their food, and whatever beasts they meet with and can lay hold of, whether tiger, wolf, or any other, they devour. After which they drag themselves towards some lake, spring of water, or river in order to drink. By their motion in this way along the shore and their vast weight, they make a deep impression, as if a heavy beam had been drawn across the sands." 
My students regularly assume that Marco is describing a Chinese dragon here. But we, of course, know that dragons aren't real, a fact that challenged me more than any other my first year of teaching. For university doesn't teach you everything that you need to know about how to deal with kids, particularly high schoolers who believe in dragons. In this particular instance, a freshman girl who hardly spoke up at all in class gave a presentation on a subject of her choosing related to the Middle Ages. For someone so shy, she did an incredible job speaking about the mythological history of dragons, linking stories of them to different civilizations found across the medieval world. At the finish of her delightful presentation, one boy in the class raised his hand and said, Wait a minute, are you telling me that dragons are real? Just before I could insert, of course not, she's speaking about the mythological stories of dragons. She spoke up and stated with the utmost confidence, absolutely. The entire class turned to me in confusion, to which I just said, excellent job, before hastily calling for the next presenter. I had to wait a full six weeks until she was absent during which time I made sure that the rest of the class didn't walk out of my room believing in the existence of a mythological creature. Yet Marco clearly believed that dragons were real, as he definitely described one to his readers. We can explain this in one of two ways. First, that he included within his work secondhand information that he had not verified. Second, he wasn't very good at describing what he saw. Many Marco apologists believe that rather than a Chinese dragon, the Venetian was describing a crocodile. The description fits, minus two things. The first of which were the dimensions. Of course, the Smithsonian Magazine is quick to point out that exaggeration is sometimes a character defect in adventurers. Walter Raleigh's gold-strewn El Dorado comes to mind. And in 13th century Europe, even outright lies were a literary concept. Grotesque beasts and magical doings were routine in the modest libraries available to even the most educated Europeans. The histories of Herodotus, for example, told of gold-digging ants in India and winged snakes in Egypt. The second issue with his description is the precise detail of the beast having only two legs. If the beast were indeed a crocodile, why did Marco fail to mention the reptile's back legs? Perhaps he never laid eyes on them himself, or perhaps he just never got close enough to see the murderous creature's backside. Dr. Francis Wood led the call in 1995 to publicly cast doubt on the journey of Marco Polo. Her argument hinges on the fact that Marco failed to mention three details that every Westerner knew about China. The Great Wall of China, their penchant for tea, and the fact that their women bound their feet. Historian John Mann counters that each of those three details wouldn't have excited our young traveler. Mann writes that the reason Marco didn't mention them was that the wall was a muddy wreck, Footbinding was new and non-Mongol, and tea was not only non-Mongol, they preferred fermented mare's milk, but also dull. His notes on the journey to China likewise lack details. 
there was enough information in order for man and others to recreate Marco's path. But even these experienced historians are unsure if they traveled the exact same route. Of the majestic Himalayas, Marco merely remarked that tis said to be the highest place in the world. Equally, he glossed over the differences of the peoples that he encountered, referencing all Muslims as members of one ethnic group, which he referred to as Mohammedans. The lack of details is quite depressing, for the opportunity was there for the Venetian team to conduct the greatest sociological study in world history. But being angry at Marco for his failure to conduct the proper work neglects the fact that just one year earlier, he was a 15-year-old boy who had never met his dad and was focused on preparing to live out his life as a minor bureaucrat in Venice. He also wasn't the only one who could have done the work. The Silk Road had been used as a frequent path for international trade as far back as the Han Dynasty and Roman Empire days. Individuals had conducted trade along segments of the route for centuries. Being angry at a 15-year-old boy for his lack of quality information is just plain unfair. The Polos would have entered into Kublai Khan's territory shortly after exiting the Himalayas. The journey had taken three and a half years, far longer than it should have. Marco only leaves us two clues to why it took so long. First, he mentioned that they were delayed for a year due to an unidentified sickness. Furthermore, they were delayed by another six months in the Himalayas waiting for a pass to open up. Man reveals that life became simpler for the travelers upon their arrival to China, noting that with the snowy ranges falling back on either side, Marco's party, with its guides, porters, horses, and yaks, should have followed the river, single file along a narrow track, such as you can still see today winding up and down over side channels and glacial moraines. In his day, it was known as the Jade Road, Jade being much in demand as a symbol of power, as an aid to immortality, as a medium for carving. It remained much the same for the next 700 years. Now all sense of the old road has gone because it has become the fast and easy Karkorum Highway, the world's highest paved road. The Jade Road would have guided him through northern China, as Kublai Khan had yet to complete the land's unification. The family still held the passports provided by the Khan during their first visit. But there were individual mischief-makers along their path who could still prove troublesome, one of whom Marco mentions in great detail was Kaidu, the Khan's cousin. He served as the main antagonist in Netflix's short-lived dramatized series titled Marco Polo. Although he remained a thorn in the side of Kublai Khan, he never amounted to an actual threat. Man informs us that Kaidu could roam all Central Asia, but never managed to threaten Kublai's heartland. For four decades, the two ill-matched contestants engaged in a long-distance fight, Kaidu the lightweight throwing punches from the frontier. 
The Polos clearly traveled through Kaidu's portion of the frontier, but Marco leaves us merely with an antidote about the man's daughter, a woman he referenced as Moonlight. The Amazonian child was famously known for her strength and independent spirit. Her father, seeking as his heir a confident, strong young man, decided that his daughter would only marry someone who could defeat her in a wrestling match. The cost of entry was 100 horses. But after 100 bouts and 100 wins, according to our intrepid Venetian, Moonlight was just the proud owner of 10,000 horses and exactly zero husbands. Finally, a rich and powerful king offered to put up 1,000 of his own horses in order to finally pin the young lady. Kaidu reportedly begged his daughter to throw the match, hoping against hope that a rich relative might prove to be the exact ally that he needed to finally unseat his cousin Kublai Khan. But his daughter steadfastly refused to lose on purpose and ultimately pinned the would-be groom. The father was left in disbelief, as no other suitor emerged for a woman who during battle was said to have seized some men as deftly as a hawk pounces on a bird in order to carry him to her father. Of course, history is less pleasant than the stories that make up folklore. Mann points out that the real reason behind her inability to get married was in fact an incestuous relationship with her father, from whom she had apparently learned all of her quote-unquote wrestling moves. The Taklamakan would have been the first of the Chinese deserts encountered by the traveling party, which surely by this point had secured Chinese escorts. Marco was overwhelmed by the sight and had this to say, There are places where nothing to eat is found, and you must always go a day and night before you find water. It often seems to you that you hear many instruments sounding, and especially drums. The old people believe they are hearing devils speak. One night I heard three times a terrible noise like crying, like someone dying. Beasts and birds, there are none, because they find nothing to eat. But I assure you that one thing is found here, and that is a very strange one. When a man is riding by night through this desert and something happens to make him loiter and lose touch with his companions, sometimes indeed they even hail him by name. Often these voices make him stray from the path so that he never finds it again. And in this way, many travelers have become lost and have perished. It was this passage that many attributed to the creation of the American pool game of Marco Polo. Yet Marco merely observed the desert's unique effects, as he was smart enough to not try and directly cross the desert, whose name literally means, go in and you won't come out. The Silk Road Foundation believes that Marco followed a southern route around the obstacle, diligently noting peculiarities of the people that he encountered at each stop. At the city of Pem, he tells a story that when a woman's husband leaves her to go on a journey of more than 20 days, as soon as he has left, she takes another husband. And this she is fully entitled to do by local usage. 
and the men, wherever they go, take wives in the same way. This is one of the early references that suggests that Marco, now 18 years of age, was fully aware of the exotic world of women that he was exploring. On this aspect of his journey, he clearly expects his readers to doubt him, writing, I give you my word that if a stranger comes to a house here to seek hospitality, he receives a very warm welcome. The host bids his wife do everything that the guest wishes. When he leaves the house and goes about his own business and stays away for two or three days. Meanwhile, the guest stays with his wife in the house and does what he will with her, lying with her in one bed, just as if she were his own wife and they lead a gay life together. All the men of this city and province are thus cuckled by their wives, but they are not the least ashamed of it, and the women are beautiful and vivacious and always ready to oblige. Marco doesn't individually brag about his own conquests, of which there likely were many. It's what made the men of Pem continuously cuckled, It is believed that in their culture, a woman was honored rather than shamed for the number of sexual partners that she had, as they believed that she benefited from experience. The act of sharing one's wife was viewed as honorable. Mann points out that the practice was also common in Tibet and Sichuan, where Marco wrote that the stranger abides in the caitiff's house, be it three days or be it four, enjoying himself with the fellow's wife or daughter or sister, or whatsoever woman of the family best likes him. And as long as he abides there, he leaves his hat or some other token hanging at the door to let the master of the house know that he is still there. These tidbits related to towns help to confirm that the Polos traveled the southern portion of the Silk Road, one which was littered by small rivers attached to local settlements. While Marco does mention towns that still exist, quite a few of them, such as Pem, have never been located. Over the course of 700 years, it is possible for the historical record to forget a settlement, becoming unaware of what its ultimate fate was. In all likelihood, hundreds of towns like Pem were swallowed up by the unforgiving and ever-expanding desert. Passing along the well-worn path, the Polos would have come out at the Jade Gate Pass, the farthest western end of the Great Wall. The Great Wall is a marvel of the ancient world, But this particular section would have been built 1,400 years before Marco determined that it wasn't worth mentioning in his official record. Rather than one solitary wall, the ancient wonder was built in sections, some of which are far more impressive than others. With the Chinese having just fought a war of expansion and continuing the spread of their civilization through the dominance of peaceful trade, the wall at this particular moment in time had seen better days. Mann informs us that when Marco arrived in 1275, the wall and fortress had been abandoned for half a century. Despite the massive structure being within his eyesight for the next 2,000 kilometers of his journey, the Venetian never mentions it. 
but neither does he mention the Morgau Caves, which were a series of 1,000 cliff temples that had been dug out and decorated by Buddhist priests between the years 400 and 1100. It is impossible for us to know why he failed to identify the things that we marvel at today. Instead, these ignored UNESCO heritage sites are lumped into the intrepid explorer's final statement after he was implored on his deathbed to renounce what he had written, to which he responded that he had not told half of what he had seen. This doesn't mean that he wasn't a witness to the cultures which he encountered. Marco goes into great detail regarding some unique Buddhist practices, such as sheep sacrifices that were used to ensure the health of their children, as well as the burning of food, wine, and little paper cutouts of people and animals that are meant to accompany the dead in the afterlife. His writings regarding Buddhists are almost always tilted towards the negative, as he had little time for people whom he dismissed as idol worshippers. But the reality is that he seemed to have lingered among them far too long as a frustrated Kublai Khan sent out a detachment to bring the wayward polos back to him ASAP. They met the so-called Three Latins, 40 days out from the Khan's palace. From this moment, Marco takes on the role of a storyteller, spending a large portion of his book detailing his knowledge of the Mongolian people of whom it is expected that after three and a half years on the road, he was quite fluent in their language. Throughout his book, Marco generously mixes fact with fiction. For instance, he regurgitates Mongolian propaganda that Genghis Khan died after an arrow hit him in the knee. That particular wound might have happened, but Genghis lived on for 14 years longer than Marco claimed during which time the great Khan accomplished the destruction of the Charismian Shah and took over Russia during winter. But it goes to show that in an oral tradition society, which Mongolia was transitioning out of, myth was becoming legend just 50 years after the death of their greatest ruler. Because they had arrived during the summer, they found Kublai Khan residing within the walls of his second capital, Xanadu. The Khan preferred the region's cool grasslands over the streets of Beijing during these warm months. Niccolo and his brother had previously encountered the Khan, having been entrusted to convey a message of peace to the Pope and deliver his request to return with 100 scholarly priests. Now, four years later, the two men had finally returned, but rather than 100 priests, they were joined by a young man who had spent the last three years describing every single woman that he had encountered as beautiful. The same word would have also applied to the city of Xanadu that stood before him. Positioned on the grasslands between Beijing and Kartorum, the location was said to have been home to a mythical dragon. The Mongol overlords countercursed the land to ensure that the dangerous beast wouldn't return before then getting to work with the engineering needed to drain a local lake. Demanding only the best, timber and stone were carted from hundreds of kilometers away, creating something out of the proverbial nothing. 
The city was strategically designed from the studs up to blend Kublai's Mongolian culture with that of his conquered peoples. Literally using the same bricks and tiles from a palace held by his enemies of the Northern Song dynasty. All in all, it took three years to build the summer residence for the Khan, one that was finished 12 years before Marco's arrival. It would have been at the Pavilion of Great Peace that Kublai Khan was crowned. He slept within what was known as the Pleasure Dome, which Marco describes as a circular inner palace made up of cut bamboo, one that could hold the combined weight of hundreds of guests, but was also able to be dismantled and moved after the Khan's court had departed for Beijing. If Marco's description is accurate, the Pleasure Dome is one of the great engineering marvels of its age. We might smirk at the name of the structure, but note that Kublai personally wouldn't have agreed with our modern interpretation of the structure's name, as Mongol men and women were quite protective over their virtues, earning labels as prudes from the young Venetian. Alas, we can't bear witness to the beauty that was Xanadu, as it was destroyed when the Yan dynasty fell. While some elements of it might have been initially salvaged, the Communist Party of China buried nearly every work which connected their history to that of their uncivilized satellite state of Mongolia. Work has subsequently begun at a dig site that is believed to be the ancient summer residence. But the destruction that was wrought upon the land was substantial, and the beauty that Marco experienced is unfortunately beyond us. But he wasn't there to catalog cities. Instead, he was there to fulfill a mission to the Khan, a man who was used to getting what he asked for. This presents one of the difficulties that modern scholars have in interpreting secondhand accounts from the far-off past. To be sure, Kublai Khan was a vain and vulnerable despot, a man who had executed members of his family for crossing him. Yet Marco describes the man as a kind, gentle soul, less of an all-powerful deity and more of a welcoming grandfather. During his initial meeting with the 60-year-old, he claims that the emperor exchanged pleasantries with the elder Polos having remembered them from their time in court five years prior. After the two sides caught up, the Khan then inquired about the teenager that they had brought with them, to which Niccolo, in Mongolian, revealed the quote, He is my son and your man. This invocation of the son's status as a feudal liegeman suggests that Niccolo was offering up his son to be the emperor's servant. At least that is the way that the Khan perceived it, as Marco would spend the next 17 years of his life working for the great Khan. We'll cover a good chunk of that in our next episode. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.